Now, last week we started our our study of Titus three verses five and six by looking at Jesus uh, raising Lazarus from the dead as a a real life example of God's work of salvation that He has to do for anyone to be saved. And it's helpful to keep that image in our heads as we contemplate the work of God in regeneration, a necessary work of God that enables us to repent of sins, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. Now, if you're if you're a genuine believer in Jesus Christ today, it is because God has regenerated you. He did this work in you by his mercy, not according to any works of righteousness, which you have done. And I want you to connect what we're what we're looking at today um, it, to your own life in a very personal way. Uh, as we study Titus 3, think about what God has done in your own life. It, it, you know, Think about your testimony of what God has done to save you, God's work in you. Think about the moment of your salvation. During that time, God, God radically changed you. For some of you, the, the radical change was obvious. You were, you were living a sinful lifestyle, a sometimes openly sinful lifestyle. And at the moment of salvation, God, God changed that in you, radically changed you, and, and you repented of your sins and, and walked in a, in a different way. You were walking according to the flesh and you started walking according to the spirit. And that change was dramatic. For others, particularly those raised by parents who are children of God and and you attend a church, heard, heard good sermons, were taught the scriptures, your transformation is nonetheless radical. Maybe not radical in, in the sense of, you know, the outward sense, but you, before Christ, still had that heart of stone. God still had to take the heart of stone out, give you a heart of flesh. He still had to wash you by the Holy Spirit. So while the change isn't radical on the outside, because you're probably doing many of the things you should be doing, the, the radical change is on the inside. That, that new person within you, uh, enlivened by the Holy Spirit, begins to walk a new direction. No longer living for yourself, but living for God. So as we go through the study, think about what God has done in your life. So we're not talking about something merely scriptural. We're not talking about something merely theoretical. Regeneration is, is um, theology. And it's practical theology, but it's also your life story if you are in Christ this morning. So think about that. Now, I, I, I mentioned this so that, you, so that you'll be thinking about what God did for you as we go through Titus, Titus 3. And I, as I did last week, I'm going to read Titus 3, verses 1 to 7. And again, I'll be zeroing in on verses 5 and 6 this morning, but I want to read the, the larger context. Again, Titus Chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds of which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Well, this morning we are continuing a, a kind of a larger series looking at the, the radiant gems of God's salvation that, that cause us to magnify his mercy uh, within these verses, particularly verses uh, 4 to 7. We've looked at the fact that God manifested his kindness toward us, that he saved us when he manifested his kindness towards us. That is the Lord when he when he saved us, each and every one of us who is saved this morning. He he did that. The, the second gem was that he saved us by his mercy alone. It was not by anything we have done. Uh, if you look at verses three, it kind of characterizes uh, people before Christ, believers before Christ. It's not a pretty history. So he saved us by his mercy alone. Nothing that we could have done at all. And then last week we began looking at the fact that the third gem is is that he saved us by pouring out his spirit upon us. We saw last week that we are saved by the Holy Spirit deeply washing us. Washing us on a level that, that we couldn't do. We looked at the fact that this washing is is not connected at all with water baptism. It's not connected at all with literal water. The, the Holy Spirit is using the analogy of water to compare um, that uh, what he does to us internally. Water has a cleansing property. That's, that's why we shower, that's why you wash dishes with water. It, it has that property, but God is speaking metaphorically to talk about something spiritually done in our lives at a very deep level that no man can do, only God can do that. We also saw that we're saved by the Holy Spirit, uh, by, by powerfully washing us. That is, there's a radical change that happens. We saw the, uh, we looked at the washing of regeneration, the washing of renewal, that washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. These, these descriptions tell us about what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. It's, it's the work of regeneration that the Holy Spirit does, cleansing us from all unrighteousness and filling us with righteous desires to do the will of God. And in a sense, this work can be thought of as, as um, uh, two sides of the same coin. On one hand, God changes us so that we hate the sinful things we used to love. On the other hand, God changes us so that we love the holy things we used to hate. And this this washing is so powerful that God totally transforms the one who's regenerated as a child of God. So this morning we want to build on that and, and press on in our study by looking at the two remainder aspects of this washing that the Holy Spirit does for us. And, and the one we're going to look at next is found in the beginning of verse 6. We are saved by the Holy Spirit abundantly washing us. Now I just want to say in general that when God does something, He does it right. He doesn't do it halfway. He doesn't do it miserly or half-heartedly. Look at the beginning of verse 6 with me. It says, Whom he poured out upon us richly. And I'll just look at that, that phrase for a moment. Now the pronoun whom refers directly back to the end of verse 5, the Holy Spirit. So it's talking about the Holy Spirit being poured out upon us richly. Um, the scriptures, uh, again, continue to use this analogy of cleansing in a metaphorical sense. And it, and it's God our Savior who is doing the pouring. Again, we're just we're just the recipients of the action. We're not the actors here. 
So God is doing this work. Again, this passage exalts the mercy and the grace of God in our salvation. Um, and it's all about God. Okay? Now, um, notice that, that God is the one doing the action. Um, the Holy Spirit is, is being poured out upon uh, believers at the moment of their salvation. This pouring of the Holy Spirit, again, has nothing to do with the practice of water baptism for new believers in Jesus Christ. We looked at that last week and, and saw there's no connection with water baptism here. Now, look if you look at verse 3, it says, Whom he poured out upon us richly. The, who's, who's the us? The Holy Spirit is poured out upon whom? Upon us, upon all true believers. So Paul is writing, including himself, he is writing... Uh, two believers telling them about what happened on the day they were saved. Remember, this Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, was poured out upon all those who were formerly once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Those who were formerly spending our lives in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. You see all that from verse 3. And just to remind you, God poured out His Spirit upon us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. So we didn't do anything to pretty ourselves up and make ourselves desirable to God. I mean, not that we could. Scripture makes that clear. God justifies the ungodly who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So it's impossible to clean yourself up from in some presentable fashion that is acceptable to God. For God sees the inside. So if we're meeting somebody somebody famous, uh, uh, we're going to dress up, we're going to clean ourselves up, all right? That's why um, wedding days are such grand events. Everybody's worried about their, you know, how they look, you know, they clean themselves up, the makeup, the hair, everything's got to be just right. Well, that's the externals. We can we can change those things, but but again, we can't change anything on the inside. So again, just to reiterate that God poured out upon his spirit, he poured out his spirit upon those who could never deserve what he did. We, we can never uh, even attend enough worship service, never read enough scripture, enough, never pray enough prayers to, to justify what God did for us. We can, never, we can never make ourselves spiritually acceptable to God. So if you want to be saved from eternal damnation and be forgiven of your sins, if you want to be granted eternal life, then you must acknowledge that you are as bad as God sees you, as bad as Scripture says that you are. And having acknowledged that, that you could never earn salvation, that you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that He is your Christ, He is your Savior. Believe in Him and you will be saved. And if you truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of your sins, then God pours His Holy Spirit upon you to provide for you a washing of regeneration and renewal. Sometimes we think about these things in like chronological standpoints. The, the belief and washing happen almost instantaneously. It, it, God is the grand initiator. Without Him initiating regeneration, we would never believe. But don't separate in time regeneration and belief or don't put belief before regeneration. These things are, are married together. They're cemented together in the mind of God. It's his plan of salvation. Now, I want you to, to, to notice the adverb that's used with the word poured. It doesn't just say that he poured out his spirit upon us. It said he poured out his spirit upon us what? 
richly. Think about that a minute. Richly. Abundantly would be uh, another way to translate that. The, the word comes from the adjective rich, which is sometimes re- re- wealthy. So you could say in a, in a wealthily fashion, the Lord has poured out his spirit upon us. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity and as such should not be thought of as a force or substance. Right? When we talk about the Holy Spirit, use a pronoun, don't use it, use he. He's a, he is a person. Right? So when you think about the, the Holy Spirit, this is, this is not a thing, this is a person, the third person of the Trinity. God poured out the Holy Spirit richly upon all those who by faith in Jesus Christ and the will of God are made children of God. Now, this passage explicitly tells us that for all of God's children, he pours out his Holy Spirit upon them abundantly. Right? Think about that. For all. This passage shows that for all God's children, he pours out his Holy Spirit upon them abundantly, richly. He he doesn't give you half the Spirit. He gives you the whole Spirit. Let's think about what Paul is not teaching or look at it in a way that to help uh, help us fight bad theology. It, it is not possible to only have a little bit of the Holy Spirit. It is also not possible to be a Christian and not have the Holy Spirit. What is Paul teaching? He's teaching us that for all of God's children, he has poured out his Holy Spirit upon us to regenerate and renew us. So this this passage in Titus 3.6 means that all genuine born-again Christians have been richly given of the Holy Spirit. Now, just for a moment, uh, keep your finger in Titus and turn to Romans 8, if you would. Turn to Romans 8. And I'm going to read in Romans 8, I'm going to begin at verse 9. In this context, Paul is comparing the life that is set in the flesh versus the life uh, versus the mind that's set on the spirit, and then urging believers to live according to the spirit. And we read in verse nine, he says, "However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him." Right? That's that's an important statement. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. The Spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit. Right? So if anyone does not have the Holy Spirit, he, he does not belong to Christ. That is, he is not a genuine believer. Look at verse 10. If Christ is in you, then the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is God's work in us. It it, it is, he gives his spirit to all. Now, if we go back to Titus 3.6, understand that, that God has given to all genuine believers his Holy Spirit in full measure. This, this means that, that this, this, um, idea that is out there, this false teaching that somehow you have to to seek a second blessing from God is false. And some of you have been taught that or or heard that. You've heard that someone can be saved at one moment and then later at a later moment receive a 
receive a second blessing or a, or a second dose of the Holy Spirit. This so-called second blessing is supposed to be accompanied by signs like speaking in tongues. Now, put it, to put it bluntly, this is just bad theology that comes from reading historical accounts and acts as if they were prescriptions for Christians today. There were special events as recorded in Acts, that occurred during the establishment of the church that God did to authenticate and validate the apostles and the church as the instrument that God was now using. And this is, this, this, it is um, with teachings like this that we must be uh, Bereans like those of Acts uh, 17. I mentioned that in the Ebridge. That we are to be um, Bereans of of like those in, we find in Acts 17. They eagerly listened to the messages preached by Paul and Silas and then examined the scriptures to see what was true. You know, again, uh, the idea there is that these Jews who were at a synagogue began hearing something new, but they didn't reject it just because it was new. As the gospel came to them, they examined the scriptures to see if these things were true, and as a result, many of them believed because they were convinced that what Paul and Silas was preaching was true, and which means, implies, that much of what they had been taught in the synagogue was false. So I've had people tell me that they, you know, they were raised believing a certain idea, and they're going to die believing a certain idea. Right? And that's just stubbornness. That is just an unteachable spirit. We need to be Bereans. If, if the Word of God teaches us something that contradicts something we believe, we need to be ready to jettison that. Right? But again, as I've said before, don't jettison something just because a preacher or a pastor says it. Look to the Word of God. Right? The pastor isn't the authority. Scriptures are the authority. So, so the idea of a second blessing or a second outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon genuine children of God in the church today is, is it's a hoax. It's a, it's a false teaching. And, and those who teach this, some with ill intentions, not all, they, they have been poor students of God's word. They haven't been careful. They haven't been diligent. And it, and it's so easy for us just to go along with whatever's being taught without um, taking what is taught back to the Word of God and comparing it with the Word of God for authentication. All right, it's 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 easy to 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 yank a text down, uh, you know, like one verse to be a proof text, yank it out of its context to try to prove your point. And many pastors do that, right? but you must be diligent students of the Word of God to to look at that text in its context to make sure that it's it is saying what he is he says it. It is saying. So understand, beloved, if you've been converted to Christ, you have received the fullness of the Spirit. You don't need anything more uh, from God. Uh, You don't need to pray for more of the Spirit. And and I would say you should not pray for more of the Spirit because the Scriptures already tell us that we have the Spirit. We don't want to contradict what what is written. Uh, we don't want our practice to contradict what the scriptures tell us. So scriptures like Titus 3.6. God generously gives his, us his spirit to each and every one of his children. Uh, listen to Don Green explain this so passionately and clearly. And this is, this is uh, found from his sermon on, on Titus uh, 3, 
5 and 6. He said, God poured out the Spirit on every single believer in Christ. He was abundantly generous on every one of us, and His generosity was such that He gave us the fullness of the third person of the most blessed Trinity and poured Him out on us to cleanse us from sin, to impart spiritual power, and to change us forever, and to make us a child of God, every one of us. And to suggest anything different is to suggest that God hasn't really been all that rich with us in the first place. This whole passage says the richness of God, the goodness, the mercy, the grace of God is seen in the fact that he richly and abundantly poured out the spirit in everyone who believes. Every one of them, not just a few. And the evidence of that new birth, that evidence of regeneration and renewal is not is not jabbering nonsense coming from the lips of somebody in an excited emotional state. It's the abiding, ongoing work of spiritual transformation that shows itself in someone living righteously, whereas before they lived in deadness of sin. That is the mark of the work of the Spirit of God. And we are, un- we are the unworthy beneficiaries of that work if we're here today and we're in Christ. And he ends, praise to be his name. I mean, this, the whole point of this is that you walk away from the Scripture saying, praise God, look at what he's done. Look how gracious he's been. He hasn't, he hasn't saved us in some miserly or, or, or half-heartedly or just, just give us a little bit. He has blessed us, not just with Christ, but with his Holy Spirit as well. Right? What a great God we have. So we are saved by this washing by the Holy Spirit, the abundant washing, but we're also saved by the Holy Spirit faithfully washing us. That's the, the fourth aspect of this washing. He washes us faithfully. What do I mean by this? Well, by faithfully, I mean two things. One implicit in the text, one explicit. The implicit meaning of faithfully is that that the Spirit washes all those who are called by the Father. Uh, in Three times in the Gospel of John, we read that no one can come to the Father, can come to to. Jesus says, no one can come to, come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In John 6.44, in John 6, 6, 6, uh, sorry, 6.65, and in John 4.14.6. Uh, you know, you're familiar with the first part of that. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's that last section. No one comes to the Father but through me. It, it, it's, it's the idea there that, that to, to go to the Father, you must go through the Son no one will come to the Son unless the Father draws him. Right? And so by faithfully, that's what I mean. The Holy Spirit faithfully washes all the Father calls. That's implicit. It's implicit in the wider context of Scripture. But explicitly what I mean by faithfully is the Spirit washes all who call upon the name of the Lord by faith in Jesus Christ. Look at the second part of verse 6. The first part says, whom he poured out upon us richly. second part through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This latter element is, is, is the Lord's responding to faithfully carry out what He has promised to do. And for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ as their Savior, the Holy Spirit faithfully comes upon them in the washing of regeneration and renewal that the Scripture promises. Uh, stated another way, there is no one who is regenerated apart from faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so when the Scriptures mention Jesus Christ our Savior, we need to be careful not to thrust a, a an artificial, and what I'd call it, um, 
an artificial separation between Jesus as Lord and Jesus as Savior. Right? This, this results from, I think, eisegesis that separates Savior, uh, Jesus uh, as Savior from Jesus as Lord. There are those today who believe you can accept Jesus as Savior without accepting him as Lord. Or, you, or someone can accept him as Savior and then later on in life they finally uh, mature enough where they accept him as Lord. But, but I, I believe the scriptures teach that one cannot genuinely believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior without believing in Jesus Christ as their Lord. You see, when we become Christians, we don't make Jesus Lord of our life. He is Lord of our lives to begin with. You're simply recognizing it. Right? So there's there's no way to separate Jesus as Lord from Jesus as Savior. That's an artificial separation. And we need to be careful about that. So so when the scripture mentions uh, you know, faith in through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's not using the word Savior and it to kind of drive a divide between Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord. No, the, the Savior is Lord. Jesus is our Savior. He is our Lord. Now, understand that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon, poured out richly upon those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And we know this. We know this from other passages of scriptures. Acts four twelve. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Acts four twelve or First Timothy two five. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And and thus even in even in Titus three, a passage that exalts God. I mean, look at read Titus three. What part did we have in in the whole process? You could say, well, implicitly, it doesn't mention faith, but it says through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So it's, it's implied, the faith is implied there, but not stated. The whole passage is exalting God's work of salvation. But even in a passage like that, the little phrase, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, uh, it, it tells us that, that, that the Lord is not separating his work of salvation from faith and belief. So, we need to keep these things together. Now, it would be relatively easy for someone to hear only part of what I said last week or part of what I'm saying today and to misunderstand the scriptures. When, when the sovereignty of God in salvation is taught, it, people often respond in what I call inappropriate, uh, in, in inappropriate and misguided ways. Someone might think this. They might ask this. If God is sovereign in salvation then why do I need to believe? If so, God is sovereign of salvation, why do I need to believe? They, they think that they have no responsibility and that they can keep living their sinful lifestyle without regret because they, they, um, they realize, that they, they, they think that they just have to wait on God to give them some Pauline-like experience, that they're not able to believe and therefore Without some Pauline-like experience, they're just going to keep living the way they're living. This is this is in part the era of hyper-Calvinism. So a hyper, a hyper, someone who is taught hyper-Calvinism who is not saved would just use that as an excuse to keep partying, keep living the partying lifestyle the way that they are, and just say, "Well, God's either going to save me or He's not. There's nothing I can do about it." And I I always thought that was just some theoretical like uh, belief. Um, some theological belief, but I have read, I have met real life hyper Calvinists who, who they're hyper Calvinists, they're not saved, 
but they live their lives this way. They use it as an excuse just to keep partying, and they say either God's going to save me or not. There's nothing I can do. I'm just going to keep partying until he does, or if he doesn't. Um, but what we must understand is that while we totally affirm God's sovereignty and salvation, we also totally affirm man's responsibility to believe in Jesus Christ and to repent of sins. You see, both these things are taught in Scripture. For example, in Acts 16, verses 30 and 31, this is the account of the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas were in jail. They'd been beaten, and Paul and Silas were singing hymns and praising God, and uh, there was an earthquake, and um, the the doors of the jail cell were were open. But in that, the the Philippian jailer is, is, is so shocked He says this, he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what is Paul and Silas' answer? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. They didn't say, well, you know, we got to find out first whether or not, you know, God has elected you. And and then you just have to, you just kind of have to hang out, wait and see if he regenerates you. And if he does regenerate you, then you can believe and repent of your sins. You see, You see, Paul wrote Titus. You know that. I'm stating the obvious. But here, Paul is saying to someone who says, what do I have to do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the message to sinners is, believe in Christ, repent of your sins. Believe in Christ, repent of your sins. God is telling you about what he did to save you. And like passages like Titus 3 to help us exalt him, to realize it was not of our not of our doing. And there are other passages like this, like we've looked at in Ephesians 2. Um, Acts 17, 30 and 31 is a passage that I like to go to when I talk to hyper-Calvinists. Here Paul is in is is um, evangelizing the city of Athens. And he says this: He says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day of judgment in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof of all to all men by raising him from the dead. So that's an all-encompassing statement. Paul isn't just saying that the, the, the sinners in Athens were to repent. He says that God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. So that's the message. Repent of sins and believe in Christ. Right? So there's we, we affirm both these things. Press this a little bit more. Someone might think, well, if God is sovereign in salvation, why evangelize? So it's a similar argument, but this one is used by the believer. The other one might be used by, well, would be used by an unbeliever. So if God is sovereign in salvation, why evangelize? You know, it's one of the common criticisms of those who preach the doctrines of grace is that they're not very enthusiastic evangelists. Well, let me just say this clearly. If the knowledge of the sovereignty of God and salvation in any way diminishes your zeal for evangelism, you have not properly understood the sovereignty of God. If you understand the sovereignty of God and salvation properly it will motivate you to evangelize because there's people out there that have yet to believe that that will ensure the success of evangelism you don't know who they are you don't know when god will save them but you know they're out there 
if if God is not sovereign in salvation, then you could say, well, why evangelize? Because my efforts are going to be futile. Because we've already looked to see how man cannot conjure up belief in himself. He cannot regenerate himself. So if God is not the one initiating, then then I could see why someone might get discouraged in evangelizing. But because God is sovereign in evangelism, that should motivate us to, to do the work of evangelism. You see, God has not only ordained the, the end, the goal, that is the salvation of that soul, but he has also ordained the instrument that is Christ through faith. He's, he's ordained the means of that, which is the preaching of the gospel. You know, God saves through life, through life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He uses his people to proclaim that gospel. That's why Paul said in, in Romans 1.16, he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Uh, another important passage in this regard is found in Romans 10. So please turn to Romans 10. Um, Read verses 9 to 13, but I want you to see this for yourself. Romans 10, beginning, just jumping right into to verse 9 and reading through uh, verse 13. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And notice that that believing here is described, says it there, for with the heart a person believes. Again, um, we need to understand that the heart here is not that pump in your chest. The heart is your spirit. So this isn't just a, a mental fact. So that's why I said last week, someone can agree with the, with the theological facts about Christ and not be saved. That's because these are they're just mere academic uh, data in their head. That's that's all it is. Unbelievers um, have this. Um, scholars of the Bible who are unsaved have that. They have those facts in their head. But what they haven't done is says it believed in their heart. They, it's it's with the heart a person believes. That is in their spirit. That trusting. It is that work. But but understand that work is connected with the preaching of the gospel. So our job is is just to faithfully proclaim the gospel, realizing that God is going to use that message, which is so foolish to to human ears, but he's going to use that message to save. And he's going to use that message to bring people to salvation. And we can affirm at the same time that no one will believe who isn't regenerated by the Holy Spirit. They're incapable. They're spiritually dead. So both these things are true. Now let me say, um, you, you could turn back to Titus 3, let me say a word about the apparent contradiction between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Okay? This, is, this is a very common thing that, that, that people think about. We, we tend to put God's sovereignty over here, man's responsibility over here, kind of separate them and, and, and say, well, what well, one has to rule rule out over the other. These appear to be a contradiction, but are not truly at odds with one another. They're they're not truly a contradiction. Scripture clearly teaches both these things. 
Scripture teaches that God is sovereign in salvation. The Scriptures also teach that man is responsible to believe. How can these two things be? If God is totally sovereign, then how is man how is man free to act? How is he? How can he be rightly be held responsible to believe? Well, both of these things are true. How can these things be? Well, I could just tell you. I can't explain it to you. I don't know how. Um, I just know that both of them are true. Both are taught in scriptures. The smartest and most careful theologians in the world have not figured these things out because God has not revealed them to us. Um, one of my favorite passages to quote is Deuteronomy 29, 29, 29, which is the things revealed belong to us, but the things hidden belong to God. There's so much about God and he, how he works that he has just simply not revealed to our finite minds. And just because our finite human minds cannot fathom how these things can be true, that does not invalidate them. In the mind of God, who rules all creation, who came up with the plan of salvation, these things are true. He is sovereign, and yet he can also hold people accountable and responsible. Listen to Charles Spurgeon's testimony warning on this very issue. He said, I have long felt that I shall never understand where the two great truths of free agency and predestination meet. I believe them both. Believe them with equal faith, but how to reconcile them, I no longer wish to know, because I do not think that God intends we should know. And I think that's the right attitude to have. God has not explained in his scripture how God is sovereign in salvation and how man is responsible to believe. How is God totally and providentially sovereign? How can God hold, hold men responsible for their sin? Right? But these things are both true. We, we can't figure them out. The, the, the issue here is trust. And I've said it before and I'll repeat it again because I think it's so important for us. When we don't understand, teach yourself to trust. There are things that you're about God and how he works that you're not going to understand. You're not going to figure it out. But, but you go back to the word of God, to what is revealed, and you trust what is revealed. Now, there's one other inappropriate, misguided response to the sovereignty of God that I want to, that I think we need to look at, and that is this. Someone might think if God is sovereign in salvation, then God must not be good because He doesn't save everyone. If you don't say it, you probably thought it or know somebody that, that, that thinks that. But here, too, I want to caution that we must draw our theology from the scriptures and not from the reasoning of the so-called wisdom of man. Because in the, in the wisdom of man, we think, well, scriptures say God's good, God's sovereign, that he saves, but not everybody is saved. If he's sovereign in salvation, one of those things can't be true. So sometimes people say, well, God's not sovereign. Other times they say, well, God's not good. But, but we need to affirm that the scriptures totally and clearly affirm God's goodness, God's love, his holiness. And these characteristics are who he is. Um, I've been doing a lot of reading on the Trinity. And, and, and one of the things that, that comes out of this is like the holiness of God, the goodness of God, the love of God. These aren't just characteristics. It's who he is. He can't divest himself of these things because it's who he is. 
And, and so there's no way that, that God is not good. That's just, it's just clearly in scripture that God is always good and he does what is good. So again, there are issues or areas in our lives, things that happen where we can't understand everything that God does. But we go back to what is revealed. What is revealed? God is sovereign as salvation. Man is responsible to believe. And God is very good. He's holy. He's love. And so don't let human reasoning cast doubt upon either the sovereignty of God or the goodness of God. His love. Now, I've gone to this passage before, but I want to go back there. Again, I'll go back to, to Romans. I guess I should have had you stay there. Romans Romans 9. And I want you to look at verse 13. That kind of dovetails some of these things in here together. Some of the things we've been saying together. Romans 9, beginning at verse 13. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Will you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people my people, and her who was not beloved Beloved, and it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they should be called the sons of the living God. And again, all by God's choice, God's mercy. Understand and embrace God's goodness, God's sovereignty in His, in His, uh, the salvation that He offers us. And at the same time, our responsibility to believe. And you can you can be sure if an, you can, you can positively you could confidently tell an unbeliever to believe in Jesus Christ and repent of their sins. And if they genuinely do that from their heart, right from within, the Lord will save them. Right? These things are absolutely true, as true as the Lord is sovereign in salvation. So in Titus three, we we've seen this washing of regeneration. We're washed. Uh, we're saved by the Holy Spirit, deeply washing us by powerfully washing us, by abundantly washing us, and by faithfully washing us. Now, I mentioned in the beginning of this message that the truths that we're learning here are not just uh, theological, not just theoretical, they're not just scripture, they're, they're actually what happened to you at the moment of your salvation. It's, it's very practical. And, and I want to conclude today by, by giving you a, um, 
a relatively modern example of God's work of the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit that God did in a man's life. Perhaps you've heard of Louis Zapparini through the book or movie entitled uh, Unbroken. Uh, Louis, Louis Zapparini was born on January 26, 1917 in uh, um, Orlean, uh, New York, to Italian immigrants. At, at, when he was age two, um, his family moved from there, from New York, to, to California. And Louis was a troublemaker from a very young age. Um, at two years old, you know, it gives a new definition of terrible twos. At two years old, on, while they were on the train traveling west, he, he ran down the length of the train, jumped off the caboose, and the train went bye-bye, and his mom freaked out. And um, once the train got stopped and the train was going back in reverse to, to, to find him, they just found the little toddler walking up the tracks as calm as could be, and, uh, he, um, you know, he was not worried at all. Um, when... Um, when he he um, he was smoking by the time he was five, he was drinking by the time he was eight. Um, because he was an Italian immigrant living in Torrance, California, uh, Italian immigrants were picked on, so he was in often he was often in fights. And keep in mind, this is uh, again Great Depression type of era. The resources are are are. Um, are hard to hard to find to try to fight off uh, to help his to, his son fight off bullies. His father taught him to box, and it turns out Louis was pretty good at boxing, and loved to beat up people. So he would do that as frequently as he could. Um, he would steal anything that wasn't nailed down. That included uh, pies that were cooling outside. He would even go to the kitchen of people when they weren't looking. He was very sneaky. And sometimes they would see him, and so he, he would have to run away, run away from them, run away from the police. And he began, he became very good at running. But he was just a mischief. He just enjoyed creating mischief. And he just went throughout torrents um, creating mischief. So much so that his parents uh, just, just cringed. Um, and, and saw his only future as like either a life on the streets or a life in prison somewhere. But his old, older brother Pete saw his brother headed for a very unpleasant future in jail, and he also noticed his brother was quite fast in running and encouraged his brother to start running for the track team. He was, he was egged on to join the team by a bunch of girls as well, so that motivated him as well. And Louis loved running as much as he loved creating mischief. And soon he was beating everybody on the track. He was known in high school as the Torrance Tornado, uh, not for mischief, but for his fast running. He broke a national high school record and running a mile in only four minutes and 21 seconds. As a 19-year-old, he became the youngest distance runner to make the Olympic team. He went to the 1936 Olympics, um, Again, all this is an unbeliever. In the 1936 Olympics, Louis fan finished eighth in the 5,000-meter race, a race he did not train for. He, he switched races uh, relatively uh, close to that to the Olympics. But his last lap, which he just kept hearing his brother's voice, his last lap was one of the fastest final laps in history of the event. And that the speed at which he ran that last lap 
uh, earned him a special greeting from Adolf Hitler. When Louis was walking by, uh, Adolf Hitler uh, stopped to congratulate him on his on his very fast lap and shook his hand. Only later would Louis realize that he um, had shaken hands with the worst tyrant the world has ever known. Louis was almost shot in while in Germany stealing a Nazi flag. They let him keep that and didn't shoot him. And but that was the last Olympics that he would ever run. I, what I tell you all this to kind of to kind of help you understand, give you a flavor for who he was. Um, in 1941, he, after graduating from USC, because of World War II, he joined the U.S. Army Air Corps and ended up serving as a bombardier for a B-24 Liberator uh, in the Pacific Theater. God continued to direct and preserve Louis's life. There are many missions where he should have died. Uh, in one case, uh, one, of the, one of their B-24s uh, called Superman uh, barely made it back on a crash-landed emergency landing. But when they looked at it, it had over 600 holes from zeros that were trying to shoot it down and flak holes that were large as a man's head. So there are many times where he just should have died. On a subsequent mission, actually it was a mission where they were look, trying to look for a downed plane. They were sent up in another plane that was really not airworthy. That plane uh, ended up uh, having engine trouble and crashing into the Pacific Ocean. Only three of the 11 crew members survived that crash. The B-24s were notorious for, for cracking up on landing in water, and that one did, and, and most of the men died. But Louis and two other men survived that, uh, were able to get into rafts. And, and there's so many details here of God's providence of preserving his life, even in that accident that are told in the, in the book and, and also in the movie. He and two other airmen drifted on a raft for 47 days with very minimal provisions, with very minimal water, lost lots of weight. They traveled over 2,000 miles in that raft, all the while being circled by sharks. These are very shark-infested waters. Um, and at the end of all that, um, he and, and the pilot, uh, one, one gentleman did not survive that total journey, but two of them were picked up by the Japanese Navy um, and taken as POWs, as prisoners of war. And due to his fame as a runner, Louis would encounter more than the usual amount of torture and brutality at almost every POW camp they would move him to. One of his guards, a man they nicknamed the Bird, uh, they, the, the POW uh, prisoners had nicknames for all the guards, but in this case, the nickname the bird was was something they could call him that, that if he heard it, it would not be too negative, uh, not be positive or negative. But they call him the bird. But the bird would make Louis prisoner number one and would brutally beat Louis in an attempt to, to break and humiliate him, beating him many, many times. And even forcing other prisoners to, to beat Louis until he was unconscious. In one case, he was forced to, to pick up a heavy wooden beam over his head with the threat of being shot if he were to drop that beam. He, he managed to hold up that beam 37 minutes before passing out and, and dropping it. At war's end, Louis was finally free of the bird, at least physically. But as so happens so many times to those in war, the trauma followed him home. He was haunted in his dreams by the bird. Louis dreamed of getting revenge by going back to Japan and killing the bird. He even tried to, to he put money in business ventures to try to, to get money enough 
uh, to get back to Japan in order to kill the bird. Well, in God's providence, all those business ventures washed out. Trying to get some relief from his nightmares, he started drinking heavily. And every attempt of his friends to rescue Louis from alcohol failed. One night, he nearly strangled his wife to death accidentally. He was having a nightmare, a flashback, and, and he envisioned himself holding the neck of the bird and squeezing the life out of the bird only to wake up and realize it was his wife. After that experience, she left uh, to shelter with her parents and she planned to divorce Louis. But when she returned to the L.A. area with divorce papers drawn up, mind you, she ended up hearing the gospel. And as a result of the gospel, and hearing the gospel and believing it, she was saved. And she went home to Louis, and she she told Louis about that experience, which he did not like. He did not like the fact that she had had, had uh, you know, that she was a Christian. She claimed to be a Christian, and um, um, but she told him that she would not divorce him because she was a Christian. And she, um, while while grateful to have his wife back, he hated religion and wanted nothing to do with God. Um, shortly thereafter, and I do mean shortly, in 1949, Lewis begrudgingly agreed to his wife's plea for them to attend a gospel crusade in Los Angeles led by the young Billy Graham. It's one of Graham's first major crusades. Louis did not like what he heard that night, and I'll quote him here. He says, I got under conviction and got mad because of the scriptures he read grabbed my wife and said, let's get out of here. Don't ever bring me back to a place like this again. But the next day, she persuaded me in going back. I said, okay, I'll go under one condition. When this fellow says every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm getting out. She said, fine. And Louis was about ready to walk out that second night when God intervened. One of the texts that Graham quoted was this, that night was this text from Titus 3. God saved us not by deeds of righteousness that we, not by deeds we have done in righteousness, but by His mercy. God took out, at that moment, took out the heart of stone in Louis and replaced it with a heart of flesh. And Louis responded to the gospel. He believed in Jesus Christ that night and was saved. In his autobiography, Louis would write this about his salvation. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So I took him at his word, begged for his pardon, and asked Jesus to come into my life. I waited, and then true to his promise, he came into my heart and my life. The moment was more than remarkable. It was the most realistic experience I'd ever had. I'm not sure what I expected. Perhaps my life or my sins or a great white light would flash before my eyes. Perhaps I'd feel a shock like being hit by a bolt of lightning. Instead, I felt no tremendous sensation, just a weightlessness and an enveloping calm that let me know that Christ had come to my heart. For Louis, salvation brought in an instantaneous end to all of his nightmares and flashbacks, his PTSD as we call it today, was gone. He never had another nightmare. When he got home that night, he poured all of his alcohol down the sink and threw away his pornography. Louis would also recount, and I'll quote him here, For the first time in my life, the beautiful story made sense. I began to cry, overwhelmed by emotion. For many years, the Bible had been a mystery to me, but now it was an open book. This was the clincher. 
How could I suddenly understand the Bible when I could never, when I never could before? How often I had picked it up and put it down because I couldn't make heads or tails of what it was all about. But with the Holy Spirit as my interpreter, the meanings were obvious. And in God's act of providence, uh, Louis was given a Bible, a New Testament actually, to carry with him in, into war. And when Louis was on that raft for so many days, the, the U.S. military had a policy. If you were gone a certain number of days with no contact, they would just declare you dead. And so Louis was declared dead, and all his belongings were shipped uh, back to his parents in Torrance, California. So when Louis got back, when he was saved, he was able to go find his New Testament and read it. Um, God had preserved that New Testament, all that, just so Louis would, would have it to read. And, and additionally, not only did the Lord, and this shows how regeneration works, this change of God. Additionally, the Lord not only removed the anger that Louis had because of all the, the brutality and the suffering he had faced, but the Lord gave Louis the ability to forgive his former captors, even the bird. Louis said, and I'll quote him here, my forgiveness was so authentic and total that I looked forward to seeing each of them, that is, each of the guards. I longed to look into their eyes and say, not only I forgive you, but to tell them of the greatest event of forgiveness the world has ever known, when Christ on the cross and at the peak of his agony could say of his executioners, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. In 1952, Louis did return to Japan. Not to kill the bird, but to proclaim forgiveness. He met with many of his former captors. At one prison, Louis spoke to 850 war criminals. Uh, some of them were the very men who brutalized him. And Louis asked to meet with his former prison guards. And he recounted, and I'll quote him. He says, I looked down and I saw them coming down the aisle. And of course, I recognized each one of them vividly. I didn't even think of my reaction. I jumped off the stage, ran down and threw my arm around them. And they withdrew from me. They couldn't understand the forgiveness. We went in the room. And there, of course, I continued to press the issue of Christianity. You see. And all but one made a decision for Christ. Many of the criminals wondered how Louis could forgive. And to, to, these question, to one of these questions, Louis responded this way. He says, well, Mr. Sasaki, the greatest story of forgiveness the world's ever known was the cross. When Christ was crucified, he said, Forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. And I said, It is only through the cross that I can come back here and say this, but I do forgive you. And then he responded to the invitation to become a Christian. Louis even attempted to meet with the bird to express his forgiveness to him, but the bird refused. Louis wrote the bird a note, though it is not certain that that note was ever delivered, but the note read this way. He used his real name to Musashiro Wannabe. As a result of my prisoner war experience under your unwarranted and unreasonable punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. It was not so much due to the pain and suffering as it was the tension of stress and humiliation that caused me to hate with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights, not only as a prisoner of war, but also as a human being, were stripped from me. It was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope to live until the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble, but thanks to a confrontation with God through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love has replaced the hate I had for you. 
Christ said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. As you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1952 and was graciously allowed to address all the Japanese war criminals at Sugamo Prison. I asked them about you and was told that you had probably had committed harikiri, which is uh, suicide, which I was sad to hear. But at that moment, like the others, I also forgave you and now would hope that you would also become a Christian. Beloved, understand, as one website rightly concludes, such radical forgiveness is made possible by an overwhelming sense of Christ's love and forgiveness for us. Louis' life is more than just a tale of courage and resilience. That's what the world sees. The world gave him many accolades. He got a purple heart and was asked to speak at all sorts of different things. They don't tell the end of the story, though, about Louis' Louis' salvation. His life is not just a tale of courage and resilience. Louis Zapparini's life is a powerful look at the transforming grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God totally transformed him to change that hate into love. So it's it's just an example of what the scriptures tell us. Let me read 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 to 21, and then we'll close with this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ Be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Beloved, if you are in Christ today, you are his ambassador. And based on that transformation that has occurred in your life, you are to serve faithfully as his ambassador. And and if anyone has a question about um, how to be saved, please know that I'm, I'm open to to uh, helping you understand that. Uh, please just see me uh, after the service. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we, we just are so in awe of your work of grace. We thank you, Lord, for your great love, your mercy, which is poured out upon unworthy servants, unworthy subjects. But we are now your children. We who are once the children of wrath, are now the children of God. And we so praise you, Lord, for your work in our lives. We praise you for your work in in Louis' life and how you used him, Lord God, to communicate the gospel to those guards. How else would they have heard the gospel? But but through Louis, in all those years, all the brutality, you were preparing Louis for salvation. You were preparing to use Louis as a vehicle to communicate the gospel to the very men that abused him. Oh, Lord, your ways are, are marvelous and mysterious. There's so much that at times we, we just can't understand. And Lord, just help us to trust what we can't understand. Help us, to, help us to understand what's revealed, but to trust what's not revealed. Oh, Lord, just ex- be exalted through your people. And we, we do, Lord, just want to praise you for this this just powerful, deep, um, faithful, and and really just uh, abundant washing that you give us through your Spirit. 
Thank you for saving us in such a generous fashion. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.